Welcome to this week's message. We hope you enjoy this teaching from Pastor Ray Dirksen, the lead pastor here at Southland Church. For more information about this message and other resources, visit myselfland.com. We're in part uh, three of marriage and sexuality um, series. I have no idea how long it's going to go, but uh, uh, I was supposed to go three weeks. So this is three weeks. And, uh, but we're going to continue, and there's some surprises coming, uh, particularly one big surprise coming in about a week or, t- well, not next weekend, but maybe the weekend after or something like that, or the week after that. Uh, could be the week after that, too. Um, but it should be before Christmas. <laughs> I've been learning from Chris. Uh, Chris can speak on every letter of every word in a verse. And uh, he's really good at it. Has nothing to do with the passage, but he'll preach on it. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Do not record it, because he's going to hear that. <laughs> oh, I love, I love it. I'm looking forward to having them back. All right, let's uh, bow forward a prayer, and uh, then we're going to continue in the series. We'll summarize where we've been, and then we're going to move on today. Lord, we just want to praise you and thank you for how good you are, and thank you that you are a mighty God, as Ray was leading us in in worship there. You are a mighty God, and you can change our situations when we depend, but only as we depend on you. And so we praise and thank you for the way you have ministered in hundreds and thousands of lives here, and absolutely changed and transformed hearts and lives. We just praise and thank you, and we pray that for whatever time we have left remaining, as with Mr. McAllister, that we would be faithful and, uh, to the end and that we would finish well. That is our desire. And so, Lord, as we now look into this series on marriage, this defining series on marriage and sexuality, that your Holy Spirit would move and work, that this wouldn't just be about information, but about transformation. And then we'll thank you in Jesus' name. And everybody agreed by saying? Amen. Amen. In week number one, we talked about the institution of marriage. God made someone fit for a man, which was a? God marked it with a memorable event, which was a? God protected marriage with a? Covenant. Marriage is a covenant between a man and woman. Marriage is a covenant before community, we found. And marriage is a covenant witnessed and overseen by God protect other innocents like spouses and children, and to hold the marriage together until the glue of mature love sets and cements the relationship. That was in week number one. And by the way, if you haven't uh, heard either of the two, we're building in this series. You will want to know this because we can't just say to our culture, no, 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 without saying what it should be. We have to build a robust theology and understanding of what marriage and sexuality actually are. And we have to present something that is a better alternative than what the world is suggest- and the culture is suggesting. In week number two, so I, I suggest you go back and listen carefully and interact with, uh, with the two previous messages if you haven't heard them already. Week number two, last week, we talked about the mystery of marriage unveiled. Two, 
two P's in it. The first one was the pattern for marriage. We're to give ourselves up the way Christ did, and we've discovered that it's impossible to do that. And so we found out that in that same passage in Ephesians 5, not only did we have the pattern for marriage, but we had the power for marriage. And that's through the filling of the Holy Spirit. And we talked through that whole thing. And uh, through the filling of the Holy Spirit, we experience God's supernatural love through the Spirit, and we experience God's supernatural joy through the Spirit. And when we experience supernatural love and supernatural joy, we can actually do what God is asking us to do. Amen? Which transforms marriage. Today we're going to be talking about the safeguard for marriage. It's a motivation, but it's a safeguard for marriage, and it's absolutely critical, and believe it or not, you find it in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. <clears throat> it's hidden there like a, like a hidden nugget, a gem. It says, back to 5, verse 21, which we talked about in the last, uh, last week, submitting to one another what? Out of reverence for Christ. Now, isn't that fascinating? In a passage where it's talking about marriage and submitting to each other and giving up uh, for the other, right in the middle of it you have this nugget that says, out of reverence for Christ. That's what many tra uh, modern translations say, but literally Paul says we should do it out of, and these, this, the actual words are, fear of Christ. That's interesting. Many other places in the Bible, the same idea is stated as fear of the Lord. The word <clears throat> reverence is too weak to convey what Paul is really talking about here, but the word fear is also misleading because to English readers like us, it can convey the idea of fright and dread, and he's not talking about that either. So before we link this fear of Christ, a reverence for Christ, fear of Christ, fear of the Lord, to marriage and sexuality, which we will do towards the end of the message, we have to go back and set the plate for this. We, we have to figure, we have to take a look at the broader perspective on this. See the bigger picture in this. What does the fear of Christ or the fear of the Lord mean? And once we really grasp that, then we can apply it properly in the context of marriage and sexuality. Now, let's begin by looking at what the fear of the Lord is. In the Old Testament, King David said Psalm, in Psalm 36, verse 9, for you, God, are the fountain of what? life, you'd think he was talking about love, wouldn't you? Go ahead and say yes, that's the right answer. <laughs> you'd think he was talking about love. But Solomon said this in Proverbs 14. He said, the fear of the Lord is the fountain of life. Jesus said in, 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 that in John 10.10, 10, he said, I've come that they might have what? and have it abundantly or to the full. Now, isn't that interesting? Whenever you think of that verse, do you think about the fear of the Lord? That's about the last thing we would think about. And yet, the Scriptures tell us fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. We seldom think of it that way, as being life-giving, but it is. God came up with this idea. By the way, this isn't some idea that I came up with 
or any preacher or theologian came up with, or philosopher. This is God's idea. He instituted, he thought it was a great, great idea to have such a thing as fear of the Lord, and the Scripture is full of talking about the fear of the Lord. And you and I need the fear of the Lord to have life to the full and have, a, and have and enjoy a great reward. But I'm jumping ahead of myself. In the New Testament, Peter exhorts us as follows. He said, conduct yourselves with what? Fear. In fact, it says in Acts, and I don't have it in, in the notes here. I have to take so much out. But in Acts, it says that the New Testament, the early church, it talks about fear a lot through the book of Acts, and we'll see a couple of instances, but it says the church walked in the fear of the Lord. Is that amazing? Uh, you know, people like to talk about they walked in the power of the Holy Spirit. Yes, they did, but they also walked in the fear of the Lord. And there's a lot of believers that would like to walk in the fullness of the Spirit, but don't want to walk in the fear of the Lord. And you can't, you can't do that. So 1 Peter 1.17 says, conduct yourself with fear. Notice that Peter did not say, conduct yourselves with love. Now there is a place for that, don't get me wrong. He, 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 he does talk about that. Uh, earlier in verse 8, he had said that we are to burn in our hearts for the Lord with love. We are to have a personal love relationship with God, and we talk a lot about that here, don't we? An experiential love relationship with God. But Peter is quick to add the balance of the fear of the Lord. John said in 1 John 4, 8, God is love, but God is not only love. And we talked a little bit about love the, the other day and what, act, what that actually means when it says God is love, because of the Trinity. Um, he is love. But the scripture says he's something else as well. In Hebrews chapter 12 it says, Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a what? Consuming fire. He's a consuming fire. This is a really important lesson we're, we're looking at. This is an important word from the Lord today in the context of speaking about marriage and sexuality, which is being thrown overboard. It's being jettisoned. But unfortunately, it is not just being jettisoned in the culture. It is being jettisoned in much of the church. And so we need to come back to a balance in this thing. He's a consuming fire. Now, does it mean we're to be scared of God? Absolutely not. How could we have love and intimacy with God if we're afraid of him? When God revealed himself to Israel, they fled and refused to draw near. Exodus 20, 20 said, Moses said, do not be afraid. He said to them as he was calling them to the mountain and God was going to come down and meet with them. He said, God has come to test you so that the Fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. Now, this sounds like a contradiction, doesn't it? I mean, um, it says, don't be afraid, but God has come to test you so that there will be the fear of God in you. So he says, don't be afraid, but the fear of God you should have. It isn't a contradiction. 
he's talking about two very different things. And Moses differentiates between it. We, we know he's talking about something different because the differentiation that he makes between being afraid of God and the fear of the Lord. If you're afraid of God, you will run from him. That's what the Israelites did. If uh, uh, Adam ran and hid from God's presence, uh, presence because of disobedience, if you have a fear of God, a healthy respect for him, you will run to him. And that's what we find in Scripture. Verse 21, the very next verse says, So the people stood afar off. Why? Because they were afraid of him. But Moses drew near the thick darkness where God was because he had a fear of the Lord. Because God said, move to me, and he had a fear of the Lord, and he moved to him. The people were afraid. They drew back. Moses feared God. He drew near. Let me illustrate it this way uh, for, for me. And uh, years ago, I used this illustration, but I'm going to use it again, because for me, it, re it, uh, it really helps me. Airplanes and me. I am not afraid of airplanes. I love them. If I was afraid of them, I wouldn't fly them. Would I? No. I love flying them. They're convenient, they're enjoyable, they're necessary, they improve life, but I have a fear of airplanes. I'm not afraid of them, but I have a fear of them. I have a healthy respect for them, and the laws of flight, I obey them carefully. I don't miss my, my pre-flight checks, and I'm constantly monitoring as I'm flying. And I'm careful not to go outside the design parameters of the way that aircraft is made. And it's got caution colors and things like that. And I'm, I'm careful not to do that. You know why? Because I have a healthy respect and fear of airplanes. But I'm not afraid of them. You see the difference? I'm afraid of breaking the laws. Same with God. We shouldn't be afraid of God, but we should be afraid of breaking his laws and the consequences. We need a healthy respect, awe, and fear of God. He is not our big brother. He is not just our big buddy. And I hate it when people talk like that on such familiar tones. There is a sense in which he is our friend, but I don't even have time to go into that. I wish I did. He said, you're my friends if you do what I say. <laughs> Not just anybody's his friend. You are my friends if you do what I say. That's in the Gospel of John, Jesus said that. He is not the big guy upstairs. I shudder when I hear people talk like that. Whether it's non-believers, and I particularly shudder when I hear believers talk like that. He is not the big guy up there. He is God Almighty, creator of the universe. Amen. And he made you and I, and he calls us to worship him and to submit to him and to obey his laws. So what is the fear of the Lord good for? What is it good for? 
First of all, fear of the Lord keeps us from backsliding and drifting back into sin. Proverbs 14 says, The fear of the Lord is a life-giving fountain. It offers escape from the snares of death. Through the fear of the Lord, a man avoids evil. If you have a fear of the Lord, listen to me. We're going to be talking about sexuality and some of these things over the next couple of weeks, but I'm going to tell you something. You need, on the one hand, to be thoroughly grounded in a relationship with Jesus Christ that's living and alive and real, where you meet with him and you pray and you hear his voice and you talk with him and you hear him in the word and he directs you and all the rest. But if that's all you have, you will not make it. There has to be a healthy fear of the Lord. That's what Scripture teaches. This isn't Ray's idea. This is a gift to us, as you're going to see. We find that even in New Testament times, in the early church, God was disciplining his people and even brought about judgment in their lives. Think about Ananias and Sapphira, Acts chapter 5. They sold a piece of land, pretended that they were giving all the proceeds while they actually held some of them back. It wasn't wrong to hold something back. They just shouldn't have pretended that they were giving the whole thing. And look what happened to them. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down, breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. The fear of the Lord came upon the church and all who heard of it. Wouldn't you? Wouldn't I? Wow. Then his wife arrived, continuing with the agreed-upon charade, and the same thing happened to her. And see the result. Great fear came upon the whole church, it says it again, verse 11, and upon all who heard these things. You say, well, okay, that's the New Testament's isolated case. Not so. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 28 to 30, it says, let a person examine himself, this is talking about the Lord's Supper, and so eat the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. Weak, ill, died. And you know what it says? Many. Many. Some died prematurely because, because of judgment from the Lord. Verse 32 says, but when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. How many of you want to be condemned with the world? I doubt there's a person here that wants to be condemned with the world. And so God says, I discipline and I bring judgment so that you won't be condemned with the world. I would call that, I know what some of you are thinking, great, long weekend, I decide not to go camping, really because it was pouring rain, and then I come here and I get a judgment message. You are hearing the good news. Amen. You say, well, no, 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 the good news is Jesus died on the cross and died for my sins and now it's all, all good. No, it's not. That's not what the Bible teaches. That may be what you and I want to hear, but that's not what it says. And so God, in his goodness and love, disciplines us. Do you ever discipline your kids? Yes or no? 
Do you do it, do you do it for the good or don't you? Of course we do it for the good. Because it produces the peaceable fruit of righteousness in their lives. And so, same with the Heavenly Father. He is not a delinquent father. Would you agree? All right. 1 Corinthians 11.32, uh, which we just saw. Job is a... a but, but, but let me make something really clear. Uh, because you, you might be thinking of somebody... Uh, right away and say, well, they're, they're going through a tough time, they're dying or whatever, so that must mean Mr. McAllister had a real problem. No, that's not at all what it means. Job is a classic example. He was a righteous man. The things that he experienced had nothing to do with discipline and judgment in his life. God was doing something completely different, and that's a wonderful story. In another place, in John chapter 9, the disciples saw a blind man, and they said, they assumed it must be for judgment. So was it because this man sinned or his parents sinned? And Jesus said, neither. So that's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that sometimes that's how God disciplines us. Number two. Fear of the Lord keeps us from the fear of man. Proverbs 29, 25 says, The fear of man lays a snare. The fear of man is to be alarmed, to be anxious, to be dreading and cowering before mortal men, always on the run, hiding from harm, avoiding rejection and confrontation. That's the fear of man. Where we want the approval of man over the approval of God. If you fear God, you will serve Him. If you fear man, you will serve man. You choose. Whoever you fear is who you will serve. Does that make sense? There's a story in the book of Exodus of the midwives. Fantastic story. You know, just one little tiny story about them, and they're gone. But what heroes of the faith? We don't know their names. In Exodus 1, in Egypt, the Israelites enslaved in Egypt. And, it said, and remember the pharaohs commanded that all the, uh, all the babies were to be uh, killed, the baby boys. But the midwives, what? They've been given a command by, uh, by Pharaoh. And yet it says of the midwives, they feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So God dealt well with the midwives. The people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. We need to learn to fear God over our spouses, over our friends, over our colleagues, over our partners, and over those that oppose us and hate us in the culture. There isn't one person here that does not face this and have to make a choice between the fear of man and the fear of God. Not one person. And the question is, who are we living for? 
Who do we belong to? Who are we serving? And who will we answer to? Right? Here's the third thing. Fear of the Lord gives us the foundation for building a successful life. Lives like houses are built on foundations by wisdom. A house is built by understanding it is established. And the foundation for such wisdom is the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We don't have time to go into this. I'm just showing very quickly, demonstrating the, how good the fear of the Lord is for us, that it is a part of our daily life. It isn't just some little thing in the, in the background or in one corner of our lives. The fear of the Lord, number four, gives us confidence at the judgment. If we build our lives with wisdom, we'll be very successful and we'll be able to stand with confidence before the judgment seat. We'll say more about that in a few minutes. 1 John 2, 28 says, Little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, Jesus, we may have what? Confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Aren't you glad that God cares enough about how you score in the end that he's given you the pretests now? That's what I call good news. He's merciful, he's gracious, he's quick to forgive if we'll deal with the stuff. And so he gives us tests along the way and prepares us for what's coming so that when he comes, we don't have to shrink away in shame. What a good God. What a good God. And number five, fear of the Lord is the key to friendship with God. There's just so much to develop there, I won't even begin. In fact, this should be a five-part series there. But I'll leave it to Chris to make it into ten. So how do we grow in the fear of the Lord? So how do we do that? We are to grow in the fear of the Lord. We know that. There are, and there's a number of ways in which we can grow in the fear of the Lord. And the first one is by considering the consequences of disobedience in our lives and not pretending that they're not there. So often we just want to pretend that the consequences in our lives aren't there. And hopefully nobody else will notice, but they are. Number two, by really pondering the greatness of God, by considering what an immense God He really is and what He has created, and we just do not have time to go there. But I was doing a little bit of that this week. And then number three, by meditating on God's word, hearing what God has to say to us about sin and so on, this one is non-negotiable. If you don't practice this, you will not grow uh, in the fear of the Lord because the fear of the Lord is by going into Scripture and seeing what he says about sin and what is right and what is righteous, who he is, how he deals with sin, how, how, it, how it affected other people, and all of that kind of stuff. If you are not in the Word, you will not grow in the fear of the Lord. That's the bottom baseline. And then you are <laughs> you're setting yourself up for huge disappointment and failure. But there's two that I want to touch on. Um, uh, that, I, that I felt I, I would highlight in this particular message. The first one is by watching for discipline in your life. Discipline um, is not only taught in the Old Testament, but also in the New Testament. In Hebrews chapter 12, it says, Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, 
Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, for, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Did you read that? God disciplines every single child of his. Period. Me, my wife, my children, my grandchildren that know the Lord, who are old enough for that, and you, all of us. That's what he does, because he's a good father. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Then he says, if you have never experienced discipline from the Lord, then you actually are not one of his that's what he's saying. Because you see, Jesus is happy to receive us the way we are. Is it true? He takes us the way we are. We used to sing a song when it was growing up, come just as you are, right? Some of you are old enough to remember that. Come just as you are. Does Jesus take us the way we are? And the answer is yes. I don't care how sordid or bad your background, Jesus accepts you like that. But once he receives you like that, he loves you so much that he's not going to leave you like that. And he's not going to leave me like that. I'm so glad that he didn't leave me like that because I was a fornicator, I was a liar, I was a cheat. We'll talk about a little bit of that a little bit later in the series. Maybe Jesus comes before that, and I don't have to tell. <laughs> That's why I keep adding messages. But I'm not anymore. Amen? And that's the point. That's the goodness of God. He forgives, and he changes, and he transforms. But he won't leave us there. Here's a few takeaways. The Lord disciplines those he loves. The Lord disciplines every one of his children like an earthly father and mother would. If you never received discipline, you're not a child. And the reason is because he won't allow you to become a delinquent and be his child at the same time. He's actually an amazing parent. He said to me many years ago when I was sitting on a truck, that's another whole story, maybe I'll tell it yet. He said because I was weeping as in Ontario and I said God how can I be a father to my teens when you have me over here and then he said to me I'll never forget it he whispered he said I'm a better father to your kids than you'll ever be and that is the truth if there's a reason why my kids are doing well give him the glory because he's an amazing parent. In spite of us. Isn't that true? It is. Hebrews chapter 12, 11 says, for the, mo for the moment all discipline seems painful, doesn't it? When he disciplines you, it is painful. Because if it wasn't painful, you wouldn't pay any attention to it. And so he disciplines you in a way that gets your attention. So it's not pleasant. 
The Lord's discipline is not pleasant. In fact, it's painful. However, God does it for our what? Good. You know why? Because he's a good father. That's why this message. We're talking about the fear of the Lord, but you notice it's not condemnation. It's not a message of condemnation. It's explaining the way he works and showing what a good father he is and how he wants us to turn to him. Hebrews 12, 10 and 11 says, But he, God, disciplines us for our good that we may share his what? Holiness. Later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness by those who have been trained by it. I, I think I've got enough time just quickly rehearse because there's always bunch of new people. Some of you have heard this, of course. But <laughs> I, I can't talk to you about discipline without, uh, on a t tough topic like this, I can't talk about it without talking about myself. Because you need to see that this is for everybody. It's not just you. It's me. And when I was pastoring, when I planted the church in Woodstock, and we were there for eight years, and we did it with good intentions, fear of the Lord in our heart, obviously not enough, as you'll come to see, willing to give up a career, willing to go with no money, no support, nothing. Good heart in it. And we started this church, and we were pastoring it, and then came trouble. Somebody in the church really became very divisive, and he was an elder. He was very divisive in the church, started a sec separate Bible study, and took my new believers and drew them into his Bible study and ran it at the exact same time we were running ours. Unconscionable. When we tried to deal with it by going over there gently to deal with it, with the other elders, they yelled and screamed at us, he and his wife, literally. And when I got in the van, yeah, I'm the victim now, right? I have the right to be a victim. Don't I? So I got in the van. I put it in gear, and we drove away. And I looked at my wife, and I said, no one will ever treat me like that again. And with that, my heart left the church. I was there in body, but not in spirit. I went through the motions of doing my job, but I wanted out. And I didn't want just out of that church. I wanted out of church. No one would ever do that to me again. I was going back to my flying. Now, if you had asked me that, I would have said, no, 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 no. I love Jesus, and I forgive, and it's all good. Balderdash. In my heart, it wasn't good. And when I got here, you know, we were going to, uh, I was just going to finish another degree, master's degree, and, and I did. And uh, so that meant I needed work for the family of four. And so I got my airline transport license, got, got offered two positions in Winnipeg flying for two regional carriers. And um, I was so excited. I mean, I was praying in those days. I mean, I was walking up and down the road in the country and everything. I was so excited. <laughs> I thought, I'm going to teach in a school. I started telling people, I'm going I'm to teach in a school. That's what I'm going to do. I'm getting out of church work. 
because they're nicer to you in a school than a church. That's the way I was thinking. Now, you guys are different than all the rest of the churches. I just want you to know that. I'm not talking about you, because this is a different church. But I want it out. And, uh, and then in a one-hour period, both those companies canceled their orders like for, for, for new aircraft that I, I was going to fly, and I was, I was, I was going to have to choose between the two. And I was out of work. And I had to, and God forced it that the only way I could do it was on a truck away from my wife, who I loved, away from my kids, who I loved, away from ministry that I loved, and away from my career that I loved. For three years. And I would cry on that truck, literally. God, why are you doing this to me? Like, what's going on? I'm on a shelf, and all the rest of it. That's when I broke my wrist. I was so angry one day. And I just swung out in anger. But if you would have asked me then if God was disciplining me, the answer was no. I had done everything right. It was those people. And finally, I submitted to him, and I changed in my heart. It took a long time. And after that, I came back off that truck, and I got back into our little church of 150 at the time, after three church splits. And I was the happiest pastor on the planet. And I said, I'll go where you want, and I'll do what you want, and I will not run. Over a period of time, I came to see God said I was disciplining you there. You needed it. And now, 21 years after being here, starting here, am I ever thankful that he did? Do you know why? Because it grew a fear of the Lord in me that every time I faced a major challenge over the next 21 years, the one thing, the one option that was not open, wasn't even considered, was leaving. Not a chance, unless he was moving me. That's what discipline does. That's what fear of the Lord does. It keeps you right where you need to be. And in the end, you get a reward, amen, and blessing. That's what it did. Few Christians consider that bad in their lives may be God's discipline. They assume it must be an attack from Satan or just the course of this world. They don't ask the Lord and listen uh, to hear what he wants to say to them. Listen to me. You won't grow in the fear of the Lord if you are unwilling to allow the Holy Spirit to shine a spotlight on your life and show you sin and show you his discipline. In a couple weeks, I'm going I'm to tell you another story. Even tougher. <laughs> well, much tougher. You must be able to hear the Spirit's commendations, his rebukes and warnings. Jesus warned and rebuked and exhorted the New Testament churches of Asia. That's what we have in the book of Revelation in chapters 2 to 3, the seven churches of Asia. 
he was warning them and he was rebuking them. And then, I mean, we even read a, a portion where, where he said, I'm going to, you know, in one place he says, I'm going to remove your lampstand. Another place he said, I'm going to kill your children, the offspring, spiritual offspring, and so on and so forth. And he expected them to hear his voice in this. He said in Revelation 2.29, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Many churches and believers are completely oblivious to the fact that Jesus is warning them, and it's because they don't even hear him. They don't hear him. Here's the, here's the fifth way. By meditating on his goodness and severity. In Romans 11, verse 22, it says, Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell, severity, but toward you, goodness, if you continue in his goodness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. When we consider God's goodness, we're meditating on his loving kindness, his mercy, his grace, and patience with us. And, but, when, but what does Paul mean when he uh, when he says that we should also consider the severity of God. And the context, and we see it in the context where it says fell and will be cut off, shows that he's speaking about judgment. We read earlier that our God is a consuming fire, and John says that unbelievers will answer, answer at the great white throne judgment. We know that from Revelation chapter 20. It says, I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. You know what? We seldom think about judgment, do we? If you're a non-believer, if you're not a Christ follower, there is a judgment coming. I don't say that to condemn you. I say that to warn you. It'd be like if you're on a raft and there's rapids ahead. You know, 100 feet, not rapids, a waterfall. 100 feet, straight down. And I yell from shore, there's a cliff and a waterfall just ahead of you. You better get out. That's what Jesus does. Is that condemnation? No. He said, I didn't come to condemn the world, but to save the world. But he does it by warning. Now, we rape the language and we redefine words like love and condemnation. And then we accuse God in the church of being condemning. He's not. He's warning us. He said, why will you die in your sins? <laughs> why? And there is a great white throne judgment coming. Uh, and it says that in that passage. I'm going to continue, though, for sake of time. Now think about it. When Paul wrote in Romans that they were to consider the goodness and severity of God, he wasn't writing to the pagans, the non-believers, but to the Christians at the church of Rome. When he said, consider the goodness and severity of God, he was talking to believers like you and me. That's who he was talking about. He told them to consider and meditate on God's severity or judgment because believers too will be judged by God's consuming fire. It says in 1 Corinthians 3, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, those are good. They don't burn in the fire. Would you agree? Uh-oh, but there's three coming up. 
wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by what? And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he'll receive a what? Reward. That's what God wants for us. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. Though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So don't be fooled. Just because you have, haven't experienced judgment or consequences for your sin yet doesn't mean it's not coming. Judgment delayed is not judgment denied. There's so much at stake. And so God says, therefore, my beloved, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So let's now wrap this up in and talk about this fear of the Lord in the context just for a few moments of marriage and sexuality. Because that's what the series is about. So we come right back to where we started, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ or fear of Christ. When God created Adam and Eve, he instructed them to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. But this command didn't take place after sin entered the world. It happened before. God didn't simply want a world full of human beings. He wanted a world full of godly beings. And so he says that he designed marriage in such a way that this could happen. He says, Malachi, has not the Lord made them one? In flesh and spirit, they are his. And why one? Because he was seeking what? Godly offspring. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith with the wife of your youth. The husband and the wife would be one. He cemented it with this, this, this strong sexual peace that made them one in soul and spirit and body. But it's a powerful force. And uh, he, he, he gave them sexuality to pro promote this deep one oneness. However, sex like fire and water is very powerful. Is water powerful? Is fire powerful? If they're channeled properly, they're amazing. If you channel fire, you can get to the moon. If you don't channel and contain it, it burns up Fort McMurray and is very destructive. If you channel water, you can have electricity. If you don't, if you're not able to control it, it will flood huge regions costing billions of dollars. Sexuality is like that. It's powerful. It's meant to make that relationship one. Because that's how you get stability and lay a foundation upon which you can raise a godly offspring. That's how you can have emotional stability. That's how you can have spiritual stability, physical safety, and provision. And so God makes this very powerful force and says, keep it within bounds, and you're going to be able to have a wonderful, blessed life, and you're going to be able to produce godly offspring for me. But if you take sexuality out of bounds, 
It is super destructive when it's not channeled properly and leaves huge swaths of misery in its wake as we're seeing throughout our culture. And that's why God hates things like divorce because it destabilizes the home and by extension society. That's why he hates things like polygamy. That's why he hates things like adultery and premarital sex and pornography and on and on. We'll talk about that at some point. And he puts it right in Scripture so we can read it. <laughs> polygamy. Huge issues of strife between Leah and Rachel. Isn't that true? Jacob's wives. Rachel was loved more than Leah, so Leah bartered with her sister for sexual favors from her own husband. Can you imagine that? That is sick. And it caused tremendous, tremendous strife. And by the way, it's very interesting. If you'll note, Rachel only had two sons, Joseph and Benjamin. Joseph was the one that the brothers ganged up on. And guess who the brothers were? The sons of Leah and her concubine. You see what happens? Abraham, same thing. Sarah and Hagar. We got strife to this day on the planet because of that bad decision. You take sexuality out of bounds, it is like water and fire unleashed and does tremendous, tremendous damage. Adultery. King David committed adultery with Bathsheba, and the consequences were horrendous. One son committed incest with his half-sister Tamar. That eventually led to his murder by the brother of Tamar. Then that brother fled for his life and later was banished by his father. Later this led him to organize a, uh, organizing a coup against his father, all because of a one-night stand. Do you see what I mean? It unleashes forces. Three things we should, that should produce fear of the Lord in us regarding marriage and sexuality. The first one is warnings and examples. These things were, happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us. Aren't you glad, church? <sighs> I'm glad they're there. <laughs> and I read that and I go, whoa, I don't want to go there. The second one is discipline. We talked about that. If you don't heed the warnings, he may revert the warnings that he writes in Scripture, and that's why it's important to be in the Word all the time, and to be in church, and, and all that, then he may revert to discipline. He may not, for example, accept your offerings and service for him. That's in, in the context of marriage and sexuality. That's what this verse is. You cover the Lord's altar with tears and with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor. But you say, why does he do that? And then the Lord says, because he was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless. Listen to me. God is monitoring my marriage. And he's monitoring my behavior in my marriage. Look what it says in 1 Peter. He may not accept your prayers. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives as an, in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as a weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers are not hindered. He said, Ray, this is for your good. 
It's for the good of your wife, it's good for the good of your children and your grandchildren and their offspring one day. I am monitoring you. And I'm backing up what I say with discipline. If you go out of bounds, because the tr horrendous damage that you can do, I will discipline you. And you know what? I felt his discipline, acknowledged it, got it right, dealt with it, and I know he means what he says in my life. <laughs> I have a fairly healthy dose of fear of the Lord in my life. It's very important. Third, by judgment. When discipline doesn't work, then God may revert to judgment. Here, not just in the future, but here. Revelation says, I gave her Jezebel time to repent, but she refuses. This is in the context of where he's writing to the churches. She refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a sick bed. That's discipline. And those who commit adultery with her, and I will throw her into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. Why? Because it will make an example for others so that they will fear. Do you see why God says that the fear of the Lord is the fountain of life? Church? Do you see why he says it's the fountain of life? If you think you can run on God's love alone with understanding that he's also consuming fire, you are badly mistaken. Tragically mistaken. Satan has warped your thinking. He's got in there. Means maybe, maybe it's because you're not in the Word enough. Maybe we don't preach it enough. I don't know. But the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life because he wants you to turn to him who is the source of life. And he says, I want you to keep it in bounds in this matter of marriage, in this matter of sexuality. I want you to keep it in bounds. We need solid marriage and purity and sexuality to raise godly offspring. We need solid marriages and sexual purity if we're to have moral authority in our culture and if we are to be light and salt. Listen to me, church. Listen to me very carefully. How can we say to the culture out there, what you're telling us about sexuality and same-sex marriage is wrong? if we are not pure ourselves. Does that make sense? We have to be pure. So God gave us a safeguard for marriage and sexuality to keep it from overflowing its banks. And the safeguard is discipline and judgment. And that creates fear of the Lord which helps us remain in bounds, and so we have confidence at the judgment. There's so many things that I'm not even tempted to go there. <laughs> I'm not saying Satan doesn't bring the temptation. I just go, ain't going there. And the reason is fear of the Lord. And I'm so thankful for that. Because then we can have confidence at the judgment. Amen? We can be confident of reward. We can be confident 
of well done, good and faithful servant, like Mr. McAllister will be hearing. We can be confident because we were faithful. When it counted, we did right. We were right. We're pure. Not in a self-righteous way, but in a humble way that Ray was referring to, with full dependency on him saying, God, I can't do it without you. He said, I know you can't. So I'm going to give you something to help you. Fear of the Lord. My love and also my fear. Perhaps you, are, you require prayer for a challenge in your marriage or your life. Uh, while we're singing the last song, you may want to go to the prayer room. Perhaps you came here and you don't know Jesus. You, you need to receive him right, right now. Right now. You heard about a judgment that's coming, but he's given you the pretest. He just told you what the judgment will be about. You need to receive Jesus. Church, why don't you follow me in a prayer if you want to receive him and, and you want to stand before him righteous with confidence. You need his righteousness because your righteousness isn't good enough, just like mine isn't. But Jesus died on the cross for your sins. So let's pray this prayer right now. Church, follow with me. Dear God, I know I'm a sinner and I deserve to be judged. But I thank you that Jesus took my judgment on the cross so that I could have life eternal, that I could stand with confidence before you. So I ask you to save me. I give my life to you. I turn from my sin, my sinful ways and tendencies, and I follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. Maybe you're here this morning and you've been the Holy Spirit speaking to you about sin in your life. Don't let it come to discipline and judgment and all of that. He loves you and he wants you to come back to him. I'm going to pray for you right now. And as I do, just put your hands out like this and pray along with me if God is speaking to you. Dear God, I, I realize that I've been playing at this thing. I've been emphasizing the love of God, not realizing there's a holy, righteous, consuming fire God as well who will hold me, hold me accountable for the, my actions and my lack of love in my marriage and in my family. Lord, I, I've also been sinning to you in this matter of sexuality, and I've been going out of bounds. And I know I'm hurting myself. I'm hurting my family. I'm hurting the church of Christ. I'm hurting your holy name. And I confess and repent of it. And I turn to you, the forgiver of all sins. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Southland Church. For more information or to download this and many other messages, please visit us at myselfland.com.